Hey there, this is Nathan. Welcome to the Camden Haven Anglican Church Podcast. I'm glad you're making the time to listen to this week's teaching. I'll have more to say at the end, but for now, let's dive right in. Who is Jesus? Uh, Who do you have faith in? Who do you have trust in? I ask that question because, you know, you can actually have faith in the wrong Jesus. You can have misplaced faith. Do you know that? What do I mean by misplaced faith in the wrong Jesus? Well, well, it's a bit of a laugh, those couple of clowns. They do great work, those Swag the Beat guys. Uh, They actually kind of show a picture of what people, some people think Jesus is like, don't they? There is, you know... This Jesus, hippie Jesus, he's really all just about saying nice, pithy things that helps you get in tune with your spiritual side. And it's just about you having helpful comments to give you vague, good direction in life that you might find yourself. Kind of Bunnings hippie Jesus. Or there's Bunnings magical Jesus. You know the Jesus that you, you only go to when hard things happen. The rest of the time you just put him on the shelf, park him. But when hardship comes, you just kind of rub his tummy a bit or say a prayer. And his job is to give you what you want but if he doesn't give it, well, then you just need to have more faith and then pray more. Then he will just rub a bit harder and give you what you want. Who is the Jesus you have faith in? Is he a Bunnings kind of Jesus that you've kind of formulated from your own opinions and thoughts? And of course, you're chucking a bit of Bible because you need to have the Bible in there somewhere. But you just pick and choose the bits of Jesus that you like. Not the Jesus who will confront you, challenge you, grow you but the Jesus that you make for yourself, the Jesus of your own creation. If we have a Bunnings mystical magical Jesus or something like that, a derivative of that, we actually have our faith misplaced. It's not in the right place. And why does it matter so much? Well, certainty of the new creation, a hope that would shape and drive us now whilst we live. Three times when Jesus says this, he's correcting misunderstandings of who he is. A couple of weeks ago, we had Matthew 16. Jesus asked that question, who do, who do you say that I am to the disciples? And what did Peter reply? Gold star? Oh, you're the Christ. You're the son of a living God. You're God's promised king. Jesus says, spot on. But I must go and I must suffer and die and rise again. To understand me as God's king, you must understand me as a suffering servant. But Peter fires up no you can't do that that's not my view of what the king should be like essentially it's there's going to be no cross here and what does jesus give peter biggest smackdown in history get behind me satan he says that's not part of my plan or purpose and later on in matthew 20 sorry matthew 20 when jesus speaks about his death and resurrection well james and john's mum comes up and says oh hey jesus thinking about kingdom your kingdom can my sons be your two ICs, like your wingmen? Like, so when you come into glory, they can... And what does Jesus say? No. My kingdom is not about temporary, self-glorifying, Putin-like power. My kingdom is about serving and saving. There's this corrective that goes on, and that's what I think is lying at the heart of these passages as well. This passage here, what he's trying to do is to get the disciples and us anchored that what is fundamental and most crucial in understanding the work of Jesus is his death and resurrection. That's why he would say to them, when they came together in Galilee, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and on the third day he'll be raised to life. And yet the disciples there are filled with grief. 
Because whenever we talk about a Jesus that doesn't have his death and resurrection at the core of his mission and what he accomplishes, everything else just crashes. There is nothing firm there at all. Jesus is a teacher, yes, and he does say some pretty profound things. But if there's no death and resurrection, finished work of Jesus, hope in Jesus, that's really nothing. Yes, he is a miracle worker. He does restore and give life to show who he is. But it's so we know that in his death and resurrection, the new creation is certain. Our resurrection is certain. If there's no death and resurrection there in understanding the mission of Jesus, everything else falls down. It's on poor foundations. You've got to understand Jesus for who he is. Otherwise, you're not actually on board with God's mission. And I think we see this played out in the story of the demon-possessed boy. So we just need to ask ourselves, is my understanding of Jesus anchored primarily in his sin-crushing, sin-removing death and his life-giving resurrection? Is everything built on that foundation? So if you look at the next passage, or the start of the passage, where we think about faith falling short, you're like, hmm, what's going there? Well, hang with me. It says this, when they came to the crowd, remember James and John and Peter have been up on the mountain, there's been the transfiguration, this great revelation of who Jesus is, this metamorphosis, this revealing of Jesus in his glory. These guys have cruised down, they seem to meet up with the other disciples, and what's happened? Uh, a man runs up, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's had seizures and he's suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could do nothing. It's a pretty confronting picture, isn't it? Of suffering and the brokenness in the world. Here is a young man whose body would be scarred and marked by the water and fire. Here is a young man who's spiritually crushed, demon possessed. And there would be a father whose emotions must be just shredded <laughs> at seeing a son that he can do nothing to, to help. It's a picture of brokenness that the world experiences because of sin. And what can the disciples do? Nothing. They can do nothing. You might think, well, it's kind of understandable because they're really like first-year apprentices. They're new on the job. They're, they're on the job, but they really don't do much of a job. You know, like can, They can't really do... well. Sorry if you're in first year apprentice. Um, <laughs> be a good one, um, not an average one. Well, he has sent them out in the past and they've done it, but why not now? What's happened? Well, Jesus clearly has high expectations of them. Did you get the strength of his response? He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy here. He speaks and the boy is healed. Is Jesus just having a really bad day? Like, was that walk down the mountain really big? He's just got himself really, really hangry. You know, like, man, I'm just like, oh, it's such a long walk. It's intense. And like, oh. Well, no, that doesn't seem to be the issue here. He picks up the language of Deuteronomy 32, where Jesus, where Moses writes this song about God and Israel's experience with God. God is their rock, their saviour, their redeemer, the one who has cared for them and will bring them into the promised land according to his plans and purposes. Yet what is Israel like? They're unfaithful. They go after other gods that they form, gods of their own imagination. 
They try to figure out themselves what God will do and what they can do. God is calling them to be faithful to him as he's revealed himself. Jesus keeps revealing himself. Will the disciples respond to who he is? Moses was singing about Israel of old. Jesus seems to be speaking here to the new Israel. Will they be like Israel of old and make little gods or pictures of God and his plans and purposes according to what they want? Or will they be on board with the revealed mission and purpose of God so clearly spoken through his son? This section is about their, well, little faith. Their little faith, their short or misguided faith. Because short faith is falling short of the expectation that the Christ will be both king and suffering servant. And we see that they're not quite getting it right because even when Jesus spoke about his death and resurrection, they're filled with grief. They're not quite grabbing hold of what he's saying his mission will do and what it will accomplish. They have got little faith, short faith. Because we can see that this is what Jesus is kind of pointing to, or the passage is about, because, sorry, he would say to them, I don't know if you picked that up there, he said, because you have so little faith, truly, I tell you, you could have actually helped this guy. You've got little faith, but if you had small faith the size of a mustard seed, and I don't know, when you read that, you kind of go, oh, it's Jesus kind of a really bad at volumes. Like, you know, like, you've got little faith, but if you had small faith like a mustard seed, well, then you could have actually done something here. Like, what? And when you get weird things that seem weird to us like that, it actually pushes us into the text. What's really going on here? What's Jesus pointing at? What is he pointing at? Well, it matters. You have to get right who Jesus is. Little faith is short faith. Faith that falls short of understanding just who Jesus is. But if you have, so little faith, but if you have small faith like a mustard seed in who Jesus is, God's king who is suffering servant, you will indeed move mountains. There will be restoration that comes in people's lives when you take that message. The disciples have to get this right. And I think this young boy's experience is a really confronting picture of what it will mean for people to not get Jesus right. There is no restoration. There is no healing. Life and restoration only comes when the disciples get who Jesus is. And there will be mountains that they have to move in due course. There are massive mountains they have to do. There's 12 disciples in this Mediterranean coastal area. Yet God will work through them as they trust in and take the message of the crucified, risen Messiah out into the world. At the end of the book, what does Matthew tell them to do? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What a massive mountain that needs to be moved. Yet nothing is impossible with God. Twelve guys taking that message of a crucified Christ who has risen to the world. Mountains would be moved. Lives would be transformed as they hear and respond to the offer of forgiveness and hold on to the hope they have in Jesus. That is life transforming that is mountain moving as God's spirit would equip and enable them 
Within 300 years, even the emperor of Rome would bow the knee to Jesus. From 12 young men, the news of the crucified Christ would go out. Well, what might this mean? What can we take out of this, this passage here? Well, it's two things just to, to, to grab onto to start with. One is, if you're a new Christian, or even if you're an old one, this passage is not about the promise that if you have enough faith, you can move the mountains of your problem. It's not about that. It's not the promise that if you have cancer but you believe enough, God will move that away because nothing is impossible with God. If you're here teaching like that, bin it. Actually, better shred it because it's, it's destructive for two reasons. Because when this passage is applied that you need to just have more faith and your problems will disappear, it crushes your faith when it doesn't happen. Rather than faith strengthening, it's faith destroying Perhaps the worst thing is it makes God out to be a liar. Because this is not the promise in this passage. God does not promise to dissolve all our problems and hardships. He will work through them for our good to make us more like Christ. As we trust in the crucified and risen Messiah, for the disciples nothing would be impossible. God would accomplish his purposes. And he would still continue to work through us as we take the news, the wonderful message of who Jesus is. Without the message of the crucified risen Messiah, the disciples could not give restoration to that young boy. And if we, as Christians, share Jesus, but cut out the fact that we must confront sin, that there was a crucifixion, but there is a resurrection, we can't offer genuine life to people. A hippie Jesus doesn't actually deliver life. Makes great bumper stickers on your car, nice t-shirts to wear, but doesn't actually deliver life. The resurrected, the crucified resurrected Jesus must be central to our message as well. There is no life and restoration for people without that message. He's a good and generous king who offers life. And just to that last section here, I think the fishy bit. What's the, well, it's not a fishy bit. It's actually about a non-fishy and faithful and generous one. Afterwards, Peter some guys come up to Peter and say, hey, Peter, why does, it, does your boss pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, well, yeah, yeah, he, he does. Um, what's his temple tax all about? Well, it's from that passage that was read in Exodus 30 for us. It was an ongoing reminder to Israel that God had rescued them, that they had been redeemed, and when they would come into the land, they would pay this atonement tax. It's a memorial, a reminder that they had been rescued, that God has made atonement for them as well. And well, that money's got to go somewhere, so that money would therefore go to the upkeep of the temple. Two things are happening. It's a reminder that God is their rescuer and a reminder, and that would flow into the benefit of the upkeep of the temple. So well, every Israelite man had to do this, 20 years and older. That was part of the gig. Everyone, poor or rich, everyone had the same experience. So do, do we, does Jesus pay it? Well, yes, says Peter, but Jesus hasn't said ink yet. So when he comes to the house, Jesus is the first to speak. He said, well, what, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth get collect their duty and taxes from their own children or from others? What's Jesus' point here? Well, he's going to teach us again about a who am I statement. Encourage the disciple, who am I? Who pays taxes? Children of the king? Is that how that works? It doesn't happen in the world, so what's going on here? I don't know, who's paid Mortal Kombat here? 
You know, where's he going with this one? Travis is... Anyone played... No one's played Mortal Kombat. Oh, wait. We've got to take it. Oh, Lockie's like, yeah, me. Okay, it's all right. Well, do you know what? When I was a kid, I had a mate who had a takeaway shop. Daddy's kind of awesome by itself. Like, you know, because fish and chips often flowed fairly freely. But, um, but the better thing for him was that he had Mortal Kombat in the shop. So everyone else, like us peasants, we had to pay. We had to pay the tax to use the machine and play the game. But him, the son, he never paid. His parents gave him special marked coins. He just had freedom. Because the son doesn't pay for the, king, the father's kingdom, does he? He belongs. It's his. It's there. Like, you don't pay. What is Jesus saying about himself here? Well, why would he pay a tax to his father? I'm, I'm the son. That does, why, would I pay, why would I pay a tax? And he's more than just the son. He's the chosen king who would actually... Well, that, that tax was an atonement-reminding tax that God has acted for you. Well, Jesus actually didn't need atonement, but he would make atonement. So why would he pay this tax? It's a big statement about who Jesus is. He's just reminded them, I will go and die. I will make atonement and I will rise. And that temple, well, that temple will pass away, won't it? I am the temple. We've just got the picture of the transfiguration glowing behind us. Here is God incarnate, God with skin on. Here is God dwelling amongst his people. There's a lot in this passage. It's a massive passage about who is Jesus. But more than just that, more than just the king and the suffering servant, he's a generous provider. Because what does he say to Peter? He says, but so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch. I reckon that's the first miracle. Like, I go fishing, I get nothing. He's like, chuck it out, first catch. It's, and it's the first fish. There must be more maybe, I don't know. But anyway, it goes, open its mouth and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for your tax and mine. Pay it for your tax and mine. Just a little side point, Jesus is concerned about not causing offence here. And when, when, you, when you read that, you might think, wait, it's like Mike Tyson saying, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Like, you know, Jesus is always seems to be causing offence, isn't it? Like, you know, like he, he goes at the, at the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. He, he pushes back against a misunderstanding of who he is. But he says here, we don't want to cause offence. What's he on about? Where it doesn't matter. Where it doesn't matter, don't cause unnecessary offence. He doesn't have to pay the tax. He's free. He's exempt. But I'm going to pay it because I want everything to be on about my mission. There will be offence and it will come because I am the crucified suffering servant who is the king that will cause offense but don't let offense be caused where things of that don't matter and it's just a good pause point for us isn't to think about our lives and how we live as god's people and just to examine are people offended by jesus because of how i communicate him or actually because of the message it's wonderful to hear that in karen's prayer that we might give an answer of our hope with gentleness and respect are people offended about biblical sexuality and the truth of Jesus because you come across as a, a jerk? Or is it the confronting nature of our own sinfulness and God's goodness that they wrestle with? We don't want to cause unnecessary offence. When we think about the freedoms we have as God's people, do we lay stumbling blocks before people even though we're free? 
Will we demand our rights and what I get rather than what is good for the kingdom and the mission of Jesus? That's a great framework to think about. I'm thinking back when it came to the whole coronavirus thing and vaccination. Now, this is not a statement in any way about the position people have. And it's varied amongst us. But is the first thing that we would put forward, my rights and me, or actually, how do I even think through this decision about God's kingdom? I was super encouraged when I heard about some people in ministry. They weren't really sure and they were wrestling with it. They actually decided to get it because not to get it meant they couldn't do ministry to kids. So look, they weren't demanding their rights first and foremost. They were thinking, how does the kingdom shape my decision here and the news of Jesus going out? They were free to get it, not to get it, but actually, no, Jesus' mission matters more than my rights. It's good for us to think about. Do we cause offence unnecessarily? We want to cut that out if we do, but wonderfully... More than that, Jesus says to Peter, go and chuck that line in, get the coin, and it's going to pay the tax for me and for who else? For you. The miraculous provision that the king provides for those who belong to him. It's a wonderful picture of the nature and accomplishment of Jesus. In his death and resurrection, there is a most profound miraculous provision for those who are with him. Those who are with Jesus are provided for. Atonement is made. Dwelling with God is achieved. When you're with him, he's a generous and good king. And it's good for us just to ask ourselves, I don't know where everyone's at. As we've been going through Matthew, seeing who Jesus is, the one who offers hope and life and redemption, God's king and suffering servant, do you know him? Before we leave this, this section of Matthew for now, do you know the goodness of this generous king who gave up his life for you so that you could know God's rich forgiveness, the goodness of belonging to him, the restoration he gives, and the hope of life that's anchored in his resurrection? If you don't yet know him or trust him, have even mustard seed-like faith in him, what stops you? Why not trust him today? Mustard seed faith in the one who died for you and rose for you. The scriptures call. Who do you say Jesus is? Bible Jesus? The king who died for you and me and rose for you and me? Or Bunnings Jesus? What kind of Jesus are we trusting in? Bible Jesus is well-placed faith. He leads to life and restoration and genuine hope. With Bunnings Jesus, lowest prices are as good as it gets. It's misplaced faith. Let us have our hearts anchored in Jesus as we meet him in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Continue to shape our hearts and minds to be anchored in your son as he's declared to us through the scripture. Help us to obey his voice, to trust him, and help us to be faithful in declaring who he is to those we know and love, that they might also know of his generosity and goodness and forgiveness as well. Amen. Hi again, this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope that we shared something that's helpful to you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. 
Just so you know a little more about us, we are Camden Haven Anglican Church. We're a church that tries not to be too churchy and more relational. We meet every Sunday. We have four services at two locations. If you want to connect with us, you can find more about us on our website, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or just send an email to info at havenanglican.com. If this teaching has blessed you, we'd love to hear from you wherever you are in the world. And we pray that we've helped you to grow a little more into Jesus today. See you next time.